Key Aero, your aviation destination. Military Aviation. Hello and welcome to episode 25 of the Air Warrior podcast. I'm your host, Richard Thomas, and coming up this week in our new fortnightly format, Key Publishing's modern military assistant editor Joseph Campion is in conversation with US Red Air provider Airborne Tactical Advantage Company on the company's operations, assets, and future opportunities in the combat training market. So without further ado, let's head straight there. So contracted airborne training and adversary operation is certainly a growing industry in the US and around the globe. Today with me here, we have retired U.S. Marine Corps F-18 pilot John Pappy Rupp from Airborne Tactical Advantage Company, commonly known in the aviation world as ATAC. ATAC is a Textron company, which is a global leader in the providence of airborne training with a fleet of over 90 aircraft at various bases with various types of aircraft and flight envelopes. ATAC provides a wide range of contracted air support capabilities to the U.S. Department of Defense. So, Pappy. Welcome. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here today. Let's dive in and find out more about yourself and ATAC as a company. Yeah, good morning, Joseph. Thank you. No problem. So tell us a little bit more about yourself, Pappy, and uh, your career in the U.S. Marine Corps, of course, and um, about your work at ATAC today. Well, of course, thank you for having me. And uh, I would say my uh, background in the Marine Corps is as a legacy F-18 pilot, all four variants of the legacy F-18, the f 18 a, B, C, and D. And I was an F-18D squadron CO. I actually started my Marine Corps career as an electronic warfare officer in EA-6B Prowler aircraft. And the Marine Corps selected me at my four-year mark to go back to flight school. And I uh, became an F-18 pilot. Uh, in the F-18 community, I was able to uh, spend 23 of my 30 years flying in an active flying billet. I completed 10 deployments, uh, most of those deployments to Asia. However, I did do one deployment to Afghanistan and two deployments. My two final deployments were actually to Iraq. I spent my last four years in the Marine Corps in Washington, D.C. The first two were working on the Joint Strike Fighter or the F-35 program as it's known now. And then my final two years, I was the chief of staff for the head of Marine Corps Aviation in the Pentagon, where we were responsible for all aircraft programs and all Marine Corps personnel related to aviation. The Marine Corps was a fine organization, obviously still is, had an outstanding culture, a lot like the Royal Marine Corps and a lot like ATAC. So thank you for having me today, Joseph. No problem at all. And that is some seriously interesting background, especially I did. Obviously, I know a bit of background about yourself from our previous conversations, but I uh, had no idea you had the bit of a prowler background that is uh i mean a bit of difference um it depends actually what squadron you were ceo of but with the ew stuff of the prowler then transitioning to the uh, f-18 legacy that's uh interesting did you deploy in the prowler did you say i did i made two deployments to the uh, asia pacific region primarily flying out of japan but yep. also flying out of uh, south korea the philippines thailand and some other locations. The EA-6B Prowler was a great aircraft. I was yeah, lucky we- enough to be trained in uh, the variant of the Prowler, which at the time was called the ICAP-2, and uh, I was happy to make the first two deployments with that uh, capability. Nice, very nice. Which squadron were you part of? When I was in the EA-6B community in the Marine Corps, 
they only had one large active duty squadron. It was VMAQ-2. And at that time, they were called the Playboys, based yeah. out of Cherry North Carolina. Yeah, I worked with them um, on their last day when they were the jesters, the deaf jesters. I worked with them on their sundown at Cherry Point. That was seriously interesting. It seems a very interesting community for sure. And then going from the US Marine Corps to ATAC, what do you do at ATAC today? What's your role at ATAC? My uh, title is the Director of Global Military Sales. So I really straddle two main responsibilities for my boss, Rich Ziggs, the Vice President of business operations. Uh, my yeah. roles are uh, primarily on the business development and capture side of the business. So investigating new opportunities, maturing those opportunities, and taking those opportunities all the way up through the proposal stage and hopefully winning the proposal, and then transitioning those opportunities into actual execution within the company. And then the second part of my job is all the marketing and strategic communications uh, responsibilities for the company. And that includes uh, everything to include doing today's podcast with you. Well, thank you again for uh, being on here. I know you must have a very busy uh, schedule with uh, the amount of things ATAC uh, get up to nowadays. And again, comparing life at ATAC to the US military, how could you explain it? What's similar to US military? Um, specifically the U.S. Marine Corps and ATAC. What's similar? How's it like working there? Do you ever think when you're just there working day to day, oh, yeah, this is similar to my background in the U.S. Marines, or is it just completely different? No, I would say it's, it's very similar. Uh, our organization and our, our company is very much like a squadron, and a lot of the ATAC employees, quite honestly, are former military, maybe Marine Corps Air Force personnel who worked in a squadron-like environment. So obviously, we're in and around airplanes. We're in and around the hangar every day. Our culture is much like you would find in a flying squadron. And the trust and the respect that our employees have with each other every day is often uh, very, very commensurate with what you would experience in a military organization. And that starts at the top with our GM, Scott uh, Brillo Stacy. And uh, outstanding culture and an outstanding place to work. So... Could you tell me, um, the listeners, what is currently happening at ATAC? So what kind of uh, contracts have they um, recently either been awarded or what are they undertaking training-wise? What do ATAC do basically on a generic basis? What do ATAC do and where do they do it? Yeah, very good. So I'll start with what we currently do and then uh, transition to maybe two current opportunities. The company provides adversary or contracted air services to the armed forces. Our foundational contract in the company has been supporting the U.S. Navy in a variety of ways, not only with adversary air, but also flying in large Navy exercises, flying uh, missile profiles for the Navy, flying some R&D activities for the Navy. We've been flying on the Navy contract for approximately 20 years now, and we just won the Navy recompete last year. So we are now in the execution phase of the first year of that contract. We fly on the East Coast and the West Coast of the United States. We fly some sorties out in the area of operations surrounding Hawaii. And then we also fly in the Western Pacific in uh, locations as diverse as Japan, Korea, Thailand, and most recently in the Philippines during the summer. And uh, we also have exercises coming up during the Christmas period. 
Our second most important contract right now, and it's currently in execution, is with the U.S. Air Force. They have what they call a CAF-CAS program. It stands for the Combat Air Force's Contracted Air Services. And last year, the Air Force bid to have adversary air companies provide services at six locations. Our company was lucky enough to win three of those locations. And we are currently providing adversary air at Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico, Luke Air Force Base in Arizona, and Eglin Air Force Base in Florida. Our cohort of people and aircraft that support Eglin down in Florida are stationed actually at Tyndall Air Force Base. So they fly over toward the Eglin operating areas and support Eglin. This is a large contract. Obviously, great news for the company. Our Mirage F1s were immediately put to work in support of these contracts. And we hope to be growing on the Air Force CAFCAS side in the near future, essentially in 2022. With regards to what we've got coming up, right now our company has submitted a proposal for what we call the F-35 Chase program. F-35 Chase refers to specific profiles flown in support of F-35 aircraft coming out of the factory down in the Fort Worth area. This program would be flown out of Naval Air Station Joint Reserve Base Fort Worth. It would be in support of the F-35 program and the U.S. Defense Contract Management Agency. This program would call for nearly 600 hours of flight time every year. So we would expect to have three aircraft over at uh, JRB Fort Worth supporting DCMA, flying specific profiles for the aircraft coming out of the factory. This mission is essentially a mission to join up with the F-35, fly a fairly aggressive aerodynamic profile as its wingman to sanitize the airspace in and around the F-35, and to also assist with the mission systems checkout of the F-35. ATAC is unique in that we had the experience of flying the test profiles of this program in 2019 and 2020, and we hope to hear within the next few weeks whether we were selected for F-35 Chase or whether one of our competitors was chosen. A big opportunity we see on the horizon for 2022 is the Air Force, under the CAF-CAS program, selecting a company to support their operating location at Nellis Air Force Base. As you know, Nellis Air Force Base is the Air Force's really showcase fighter base. It is a key base for weapons and tactics development in the Air Force. And the Air Force has voiced the opinion that they want a more capable and lethal adversary force out at Nellis. We believe in the end, it will be a combination of organic Air Force assets and contracted air services aircraft. And that's where ATAC would come in. If Nellis is assigned in 2022, we believe at this time, based on what we've been told by the armed forces, that it would be the single biggest operating location for the Air Force under the CAFCAS program. We think it will be about 3,500 sorties for the first year, and those sorties should be expected to be about 1.5 hours in duration. So your listeners can do the math. That's over 5,000 hours of flight time each year in a very high-end environment. So we're excited about our chances out at Nellis, and we're hopeful that our Mirage F1s will compete and compete well in the Nellis proposal that's coming up. Very interesting, uh, Papi. I just have a few questions, of course. 
So regarding the US Navy contract, and you said uh, you've just recently completed the 20 years, one previously and you're in the first year of the next contract. Can you tell us how long this contract is? Yes, this uh, next contract, <laughs> believe it or not, is for four years and 364 days. So it's just short of five years. Uh, yep. We are now in what they call the base year of that contract. And uh, execution is going well. We have a long lineage, obviously, of supporting the U.S. Navy. Many of the leading pilots in our company are former naval aviators who have experience flying off the carriers. And also, they are graduates of the Navy Fighter Weapons School or Top Gun and a, a strong relationship with the Navy. That program essentially supports all of the activity for the fleets off of the East and West Coast. So our location at Newport News, we're ideally situated to support the Navy uh, fleet coming out of Norfolk, Virginia Beach area. But we also fly uh, south to uh, South Carolina to support the Marines at Beaufort, South Carolina. And we fly to Key West and to Jacksonville, Florida to support Navy exercises there. On the West Coast, our location at Point Magoo is ideally situated to support the U.S. Navy forces coming up from San Diego, the U.S. Navy forces that are out at Fallon, and also the U.S. Navy forces that are coming from the Seattle area. And we also support the U.S. Marine Corps in places like Marine Corps Air Station Yuma, Marine Corps Air Station Miramar, and uh, occasionally in the Camp Pendleton area. Wow, you guys uh, seriously cover some miles. <laughs> that is really <laughs> impressive kind of, or if you could say, spread of uh, locations of operation. That's kind of crazy in a way. Which aircraft for the U.S. Navy? I'm guessing that's mainly, uh, do you still use the Hawker Hunter and the Kaffirs in support of them operations mainly? We do. We use the Mark 58 Hawker Hunters yeah. and the Kaffirs. What we found is that complement of aircraft fits into the categories or the capabilities that the Navy wants for these exercises. Uh, mm -hmm. We try to make sure that we tailor our solution to what the Navy wants yeah. in the form of the number of sorties they want and also what they want those sorties to achieve. So we believe that the Mark uh, 58 Hawker Hunter and the Kaffir provides a nice subsonic, supersonic mix of aircraft, and we're able to uh, complete those missions successfully for the Navy. Yeah, and how do you segment the two aircraft to specific missions? So, like, let's say you said you do the uh, missile profile for the U.S. Navy. Would you pick the Kaffir with its speed, or would you pick the Hawker Hunter for, like, what? how's that kind of, like you said, tailored? Well, we have uh, continuous meetings with the Navy, and we make sure that we fly the profile that they desire. If they ask for a subsonic profile, uh, obviously the Hawker Hunters fit that bill. If they're asking for something high speed or supersonic, Obviously, we'll flex and put the uh, the Kaffirs into that role. Uh, we do hope also in the very near future, as part of our proposal to the Navy, we did put in a complement of three Mirage F-1s. So we may be growing into that aircraft flying on the Navy contract someday in the future. Okay. And about the uh, CAFCAS program, uh, specifically at Nellis, would that be basically just taking out the uh, A4 Skyhawks from Draken and their um, L-59s, et cetera, would you just basically take over that role at, at Nellis? It's interesting. The current complement of Draken aircraft are flying in support of the Air Warfare Center. But yes, this seems to be, of course, we haven't seen the final, what they call FOPR yet, 
but this would seem to be set up for a one-for-one replacement or uh, a one-for-one program. I don't want to insinuate that, you know, anybody uh, is going to go in there at this time because it's too early, but this program does seem to be a one-for-one replacement of the existing program that is at Meros. Yeah. So firstly, we expect the uh, F-35 Chase release of who won the bid in the next few weeks, which is interesting. But is this still a few months away or half a year away, the 2022 CAFCAS at Nellis? Is that later to be released? We believe that the what they call the FOP or the Fair Opportunity Proposal Request, or what mainly is a request for proposals, we believe mm-hmm. that that will come out in January of 2022, early in 2022, with an announcement of the winner in uh, somewhere in the May-June timeframe of 2022. So that's what we are kind of calibrating towards. And I think that's what the rest of industry is calibrating towards right now. Okay, very interesting times ahead. And with all this that you just provided us, what ATAC does and where it does it, why do you think ATAC is a benefit to the USDOD? Well, it's interesting. You know, the last few years I was in the service, I was able to see the transition of the U.S. Department of Defense from fourth-gen fighters to fifth-gen fighters. And I had intimate knowledge of the F-35 program, both from a U.S. perspective and an international perspective. Uh, All of the international pilots who were working on the F-35 program were colleagues of mine, and we worked together in the requirements division of the F-35 program. I think it's, you know, safe to say that the contracted air services element or commercial companies providing contracted air services is significant for a number of reasons. The first is we don't, in the United States, and I'm sure internationally, you don't want to have F-35s flying adversary air for other F-35s. The cost per flight hour of the F-35 and the life of the F-35 are assets that need to be husbanded or saved. So we are a rather inexpensive alternative to having to do that on a daily basis. As an F-18 squadron CO, I was routinely able to send my F-18s airborne to act as adversaries for my own squadron. I would not want to be doing that if I was an F-35 squadron CO. Uh, It would just be too expensive, and it would also eliminate a fair degree of combat readiness from my own squadron. I want to be able to provide F-35 and F-22 squadron CEOs the ability to fly the mission that they need to maintain their combat readiness and not have to do the red air mission. So we see it as a win-win. We see that they save money simply by not having to fly their own F-35s and saving the life of those aircraft. But also we see this as a combat multiplier in that they're able to get more missions focused on the mission that they're going to perform in real life and redo the adversary air mission. Yeah, and I'm guessing that's the whole rationale behind the procurement of Mirage F1s by ATAC, then, so we can provide a bit more of a capable flight envelope against these fifth-gen fighters. As we know, the F-35, the F-22, even the F-15 EX coming into play, like things are getting very technical, and if you put them aircraft and them technologies against a Mark 58 Hawker Hunter, we know who's at advantage there, but a Mirage F1 might be able to put a bit more of a fight. So is that the procurement of Mirages, that's the reason, just so you can pack a bit more of a heavier punch against these uh, fifth-gen fighters? It is, uh, Joseph. You know, when uh, I was not a member of the company at that time, but when our company made the commitment to buy the Mirage F1, I think we believe it was a very sound decision on a number of fronts. 
The first was the Mirage F1 from an aerodynamic performance perspective is very, very capable. It can go up to Mach 2.1, can fly up to 50,000 feet, has a pretty expansive envelope from an aerodynamic perspective. The second is with regards to the integration of systems or the integration of follow-on systems. I think the research and development staff at ATAC did a fine job saying, this is an aircraft that we could potentially put new avionics, new systems into, and the structure or the infrastructure of the aircraft could support it. Uh, things like electricity, uh, cooling, heating, and space. So they looked at the size, weight, and power of the Mirage F1, and they thought it was a good match, not only for 2020, 2021, but also for the future. Yeah, definitely. And uh, going from the future to the past, and only for our listeners, but and a brief answer only, really, uh, Papi, but what is the previous life of these Mirage F1s? Where did they come from? The Mirage F1s that we purchased came from France. We have a total of 63 airframes. Right now, it is undecided whether we will bring all 63 airframes back to life or some portion of them. But all the aircraft were in uh, fine shape. We also purchased a large cohort, essentially a warehouse full of parts and over 100 engines to support these aircraft. So. We feel that we are well positioned not only for the 2020 to 2025 timeframe, but also 2025 to 2030. That's a good plan to be that far ahead, and especially with a, a warehouse of parts, as you say, and uh, the backup of an extra uh, 37 engines. Uh, that's good for single engine aircraft. So, moving on to the last question what is the future of ATAC? So, you mainly perform your operations over in the US. But do you have a plan to move out of the US and expand into Europe or the rest of the world or even participate in foreign exercises? So, for instance, like Frisian flag up in the Netherlands, uh, blue flag that's just concluded in uh, in Israel. Would you ever provide adversary platforms for the, you know multinational exercises like that? Well, to answer your question uh, right up front, the answer would be yes. We are always evaluating opportunities, not only within the United States, but around the world. Uh, the limiting factor right now is how busy we are, quite honestly, in the United States. But it is my responsibility, actually, for my boss, Rich Zins, the vice president of business operations, to be looking out on the horizon. I will tell you, we are seriously looking at and participating in a number of opportunities that we believe will come to fruition in Europe. We know that our, our competitors are also, and we respect their participation, obviously, but we believe that there are opportunities emerging in the United Kingdom. We believe that there are valid opportunities originating with the European Defense Agency. We know that the U.S. Air Forces in Europe are starting a program. They are actually doing what they call an ad-air utility assessment in the spring of 2022 off the United Kingdom. And the U.S. Air Forces Europe have forces not only at Lake and Heath in Europe, but also at Spengalen in Germany and down in Aviano in Italy. We think any country that has current fourth generation fighters, but more importantly, any country that is transitioning into fifth generation fighters, countries like the United Kingdom, Italy, the Netherlands, Poland, and all of the partner countries in the F-35 program and all of the FMS countries in the F-35 program will one day have a need for ad-air services just like the U.S. Air Force, the U.S. Navy, and the U.S. Marine Corps. In Asia, 
we know that the Japanese are, are buying the F-35. We know that the Republic of Korea and Singapore are potentially going to buy the F-35. We know Australia has purchased the F-35. So there are going to be what we think a fruitful environment for these services. And what we want to do is make sure first that we understand what the customer requires in the adversary aircraft. And number two, can we go there and can we support it in a very effective fashion? It's interesting that ATAC, because of our experience on the Navy program, has learned to be expeditionary in its nature. We have a pack-up list. Our personnel are used to picking up and flying to a location, sometimes around the world, to support operations. So we have a background in that, and we're pretty comfortable with that. Yeah, and that's very helpful, especially with what's ongoing in the U.S. Air Force, and even the U.K. are picking it up now with uh, ACE, Agile Combat Employment, so that really fits and suits what ATAC can do. So, yeah, no, that's very interesting and shows how adaptable ATAC is as a company with both its personnel personnel, sorry, and its aircraft. Yeah, very good. Okay, well, that was seriously interesting, Papi. I really appreciate your time, and I'm sure our listeners are going to really enjoy listening to that. It's obviously uh, a bright future ahead of ATAC um, if these contracts come into fruition. And really interesting about the uh, the expansion across the world. Uh, obviously, everyone looks for expansion, but it seems like, uh, well, even the UK yesterday, I think it was or the day before, about the ASTOC program. It's kind of going the way of contracted um, air support. So thank you again for your time, and uh, I'm sure our listeners do also. Well, thank you, Joseph, and I appreciate your time today. Thank you. For our listeners, if you'd like to know more about the topics discussed today and all the rest of the news from the Air Domain, please visit the Key Aero website. But for now, thanks for tuning in. This has been a podcast from Key Aero, your aviation destination. Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.